Welcome to another episode of The Walking Classroom. I am Laura Fenn, and today I'm at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh, North Carolina. And with me is Dr. Roland Kays. He is the Director of Biodiversity and Earth Observation Lab here at the museum. You are also a zoologist. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us more about what a zoologist is and what you do. Sure. Well, uh, thanks for having me. Hi, everybody. Um, uh, well, zoologists study animals. Uh, that's the, the basic, uh, you know, the basic idea, the study of animals. And uh, so you can be a zoologist and be a mammologist studying mammals or an entomologist studying insects or an ornithologist studying birds or lots of those different kinds of things. And I don't like to pin myself down to one because I like all sorts of different animals. So I, I do most of my research on mammals, but I've also done a lot of work on birds. And we even did a study once where we put little radio transmitters on bees and follow them around. So that's why I sort of like to use the word zoologist because it's sort of all-encompassing and it doesn't pin me down into one one little pigeonhole. How, how are you a zoologist as opposed to a certain specific path? Scientists ask questions and a lot of the types of questions that I'm interested in is where animals move and how they move around. All animals move. And Got so okay. uh, I'm sort of asking the same type of question in, about movement but asking them with different study subjects. So sometimes it's a bird and I'm looking at how it's migrating around and other times it might be like the bee I mentioned and how they're flying around and pollinating different things or um, studying coyotes and how they move through urban environments. Different types of, of, of animals and different twists on this question of where animals go and why they move and how they move. Fantastic. And how did you get interested in that specific area of study? I've always been interested in animals and also sort of had this, this um, interest in maps and just this interest in, in spatial things and loved looking at maps, loved exploring new areas myself and getting sort of this internal map in my own brain of what the forest looks like. Um, I really like being able to walk down a trail and sort of know in my brain off to the right and off to the left what's down there. I think um, that is sort of uh, some of what got me interested in where animals move, you know, whether it's on a, on a fine scale of exactly where they move or on broader scales of just where they live. You know, where, where in North America do uh, bears live, for example, or do fishers live? Um, and, and so sort of a different scale, sometimes really fine scale, how exactly they move through a neighborhood or sometimes at these larger scales of, of just where do they live on the planet. How does your research uh, integrate with other scientists or even other other areas of knowledge? Sure. Well, uh, I often come in as kind of the animal expert into a team of people that uh, bring different expertise together. Um, and one, one good example of that, I think, is when we start combining the, the information about the animals with the information about the environment that they're moving through. And so we often use data that comes from satellites that are looking down on Earth and saying, you know, for example, this is where the forest is and this is where a field is and this is where a road is. Um, or other times, even this is what the weather was like at this particular place and this particular time. And so if we're studying, say, a great egret, a big bird that's migrating, we had an animal last year, for example, that flew from North Carolina north in migration in the spring to New York City in one night. Wow. And oh my so gosh. that was pretty amazing. And we saw this from the animal side. We're like, oh my goodness, how did this happen? And so we connected with um, some weather experts and got the weather data for that particular day, that particular place. Turns out there was a huge south wind. And so the bird was probably sitting in the swamp waiting for this storm to come through, jumped up in the air, and just rode the wave all the way north. And so that's an example of how 
combining you know some weather experts with some uh, bird experts uh, together can some discover some of these interesting things about animals. So then, once you have this information, what do what do people do with it? Well, so we ask questions with it, and there's lots of different types of questions you can ask that uh, relate to different different issues, whether it's just understanding something about an animal or looking at conservation issues as well in terms of, you know, how do these animals survive? How can we help them survive? Um, Why are they moving? For example, if maybe I'm thinking if they had been in a certain area and you were able to track several of them, if you notice that many of them are moving to a different area, Maybe what's the reason why? Is it climate? Is it pollution in where they had been, perhaps? Right. Well, and especially for these migrating birds, which is interesting because these guys can fly, you know, 16 miles an hour. Um, it actually gives them a lot of flexibility in their choice to decide, I want to go here or I want to go here or, you know, it's too cold. I need to move somewhere else or this, uh, you know, it's too dry here. Um, and so it's really interesting to look at those choices at that level. So you said that you were always interested in animals as a child. And what was sort of the turning point for you to get involved as a zoologist? Well, I'd also always been into science. Um, and for me as a kid, the science and the outdoors were two separate things. So I would spend a lot of time running around the woods, making forts. Um, I was in Boy Scouts, and we'd go camping. We'd go camping with my family. And so I was always doing these outdoor things. And then in school, I was always interested in science. And so that was my favorite class. And um, when, I, when I went to college, I, you know, I wanted to go into science. And at the time, I was really interested in, um, in genetics and, and uh, genetic engineering and stuff, all that kind of stuff was really cool. And so um, I took all the science classes in my freshman year. I took chemistry and, um, you know, bio 101 and all those kinds of things. And then uh, I was lucky enough to get a job after my freshman year in a lab at a medical school um, doing research on uh, nerve cells. And it was exhausting. At the end of every day, of a sort of all day long in the lab, I was just sort of mentally and physically exhausted. And, and it wasn't very exciting. It wasn't um, – I mean, I liked some aspects of it, but I kind of thought – this isn't what I want to do. I don't want to do just this the rest of my life. And right. so um, when I went back to college for my, my sophomore year, I sort of looked around a little bit more and said, well, what other kinds of sciences are there that I might be more jazzed about than just this lab work? And, um, and that's when I found I, – so I, uh, that's when I found the types of fields that I study now. Um, and I, the first class I took that semester was mammalogy and I had a really good professor and – um, that kind of set me off and running with mammals, you know, especially. Um, and I kind of think, you know, if I had taken ichthyology, I probably would be a fish expert right now right. or entomology, whatever it was at that point in time. It sort of helped me be off and running, um, you know, and I kind of have come full circle. I, I do do lab work. I enjoy lab work. Um, and it provides really important data for answering important scientific questions. I just don't want to be in there doing it all day long. Sure. And there's a process, right? I mean, not one scientist can do everything. And so there are people who are in the lab looking at cells through microscopes and, you know, really focusing on the behavior of cells that, you know, aren't visible to the naked eye and, you know, all the way up through being out in the field collecting specimens, or in your case, finding new specimens. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So I was part of a team that described uh, last year uh, a new species of mammal called the Olinguito, um, which was, uh, it's a member of the raccoon family, and which is in the order carnivora. And so although it eats fruit, it's classified as a carnivore. So that would be like if your last name was vegetarian, but you still ate meat, right? So it's a little bit, some people get a little bit confused. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a fruit-eating carnivore. 
right? It's okay. a little confusing. Anyway, it's the first new member of this group of carnivores that's been described from uh, anywhere in the New World in 35 years. Oh, fantastic. Um, so exciting. It was really exciting. It's also very cute. Well, so it turns out this animal's kind of been hiding underneath our noses for a long time. And uh, I was working with a, a guy named Chris Helgen, who's the curator of mammals at the Smithsonian. He had been looking through museum drawers, looking at Olingos. So there are a number of species of Olingos. We've known about them for quite a long time. They're, um, like I said, they're a member of the raccoon family. They live up in the trees. They only come out at night. They eat a lot of fruit. They're are they cute. In, in North America? They're in South, South and Central America, okay. in rainforests in South and Central America. Okay. Anyway, he was looking at these specimens. That they had stuffed in the drawer. That's right. So he was down in the bowels of museums, behind the scenes, pulling open these sort of mothball-filled cabinets and looking at old skins and skeletons. And as he opened this one drawer, there was this red Olingo. And he said to himself, there are no red Olingos. Uh, and he looked really carefully. And then he found a couple more and realized that there was this Olingo that had never been described to science. Uh, he talked to me about this. And I had actually studied Olingos in Panama, live Olingos, done some radio tracking of them. And basically almost nobody else had ever done anything with Olingos. They're a pretty obscure group. And they're hard to study because they're up in the trees and they only come out at night. So I was climbing trees and putting traps up and tromping around in the forest at night all by myself in Panama. On, in Panama. <laughs> and so uh, I was sort of the de facto Olingo expert, even though I, you know, I hadn't studied them that much, but I knew more than anybody else. So Chris came to me and we sort of cooked up this plan. We said, well, we should, you know, see if they're still there, get some fresh genetic samples, you know, really do a good job at, on this, on this discovery. And so that's, that's kind of how we got involved. And then uh, he and I worked with a student from Ecuador named Miguel Pinto. And we went to Ecuador and uh, found the animals in, in the forest there, in the cloud forest. So we used the clues on these old museum specimens. Some of them were 50 or 100 years old, and they, they all had the location written down. And it turns out all of these were in uh, from high elevation cloud forest habitat. So uh, not the lowland the high canopy. rainforest, but well, top of the mountains. Okay. And so up where it's cooler and very cloudy and wet, but it's a okay. different environment than lowland rainforest and where all the other all the other lingos were known from. We we knew roughly what elevation and we knew that they were from Ecuador and Colombia. From that, we sort of picked an area and, and, you know, working off of Miguel's expertise, knowing his country really well, we picked a forest called Otonga that we thought would be good. And sure enough, the first night we saw them up feeding on fig trees right there in that oh forest. Oh, my gosh. So, Do you know how many might be in existence? I mean, is there any way to estimate the population size? No, we, we don't know that. We, you know, it's a new species to science. We, we don't know very much about it. So what are the next steps? Well, so one of the important things we were able to do was collect a bunch of locations from these specimens that were in museums that had been vouchered. And that's so important to put these in museums. If no one had done this in the past, we wouldn't know about this. And and it's also important to keep doing that today to, to show, you know, museum specimens give a snapshot of what the planet is like right now. And they become basically like time machines so that we can go back and study these specimens and do all kinds of chemical tests, genetic tests, uh, measurements on these uh, animals to learn about what was happening before, what's happening today, and so people in the future will be able to do that again. But so from these specimens, we were able to put all these dots on a map and uh, run some new uh, computer models to figure out where else we think the animals live. So the, spe the specimens gave us dots. So this is where the animal lives or lived recently. And then we can say, well, what's special about those places? And then project and make prediction okay. about where, basically fill in the gaps between there about where else they live. So from that, we were able to make a range map of saying, this is where we think the Olingito lives. 
and then look at some of the satellite data and say, well, okay, about a half of this has been already deforested. And so they have lost a lot of their habitat, but they still have quite a bit of what we think is the right type of forest that's there. So now we know some priorities of what we need to protect to protect the Olenguito, um, and also some priorities of new areas that seem like they might be good for us, but we have no idea if they're actually there. And so to try to get people to go out and look for them, take pictures, take new museum specimens, More whatever, to verify. More that citizen science that we've talked about. Well, perhaps? citizen science or even real science, you know, get encouraged. And so we've been working with some folks in Colombia and Ecuador and say, uh, you know, hey, this mountain range looks like it might be good habitat. And we have had some citizen science. We got so much media attention for this Olenguito because, you know, part because it was so cute. <laughs> we really had some great pictures. So how and, big are they? Well, they're actually pretty small. They're only about two pounds. Oh. Um, and they have a long, fluffy tail. And, uh, you know. So is their body about the size of a fist? No, well, it's, they're sort of long and, and slinky. So, um, you know, they're, they're maybe uh, eight, eight or ten inches long for their body, and then their tail about as long, and it's really fluffy. Okay, um, and, and so reddish in color. Kind of like a, yeah, it's a bigger than a squirrel. It's okay. where, you know, some squirrels, they're, they're about the size of some squirrels. We'll make sure to link some pictures really to squirrel. the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get, some, get some of those cute pictures in there. After we got all this attention from the media, we started getting all these emails from people saying, hey, I think I've got a picture of an Olinguito. And they would send us all these pictures from all over the place in Ecuador and Colombia. Some of them were not Olinguito. Some of them were Olingos. Some of them were another animal called a kinkajou. The Olinguito is unique enough that in some cases we were able to say, yes, that is definitely an Olinguito. So we got these new records, new locations. And actually what we're doing now is we're working with a student in New York, a, a grad student, at the City College of New York to re now add this new data that we've gotten from uh, citizens, from bird watchers, from ecotour lodges, and see if we can uh, say more about the animal just based on this new data that we've gotten uh, through all these emails. Oh, that's so exciting! That that is just that's sort of a legacy sort of thing. Well, it is, and, and it shows that there's you know there there are still these discoveries to be had you know all over the place, uh, new species you know that people have coming to these tourist lodges. Um, that lots of uh, bird watchers had been seen, and not, and actually some of them had started wondering, this thing looks different. Yeah. Um, and and uh, and so there are these things to be discovered, um, and not only in remote rainforests, but uh, you know we're working with a lot of projects in uh, North America, in cities, in the countryside, and starting to find some really surprising things about animals in cities and how much animals are reclaiming the cities where these animals are actually changing. They're evolving and moving into cities. So people think, oh, the cities are moving into the animals' territory. Actually, I think it's a lot of the others. Uh, of the, uh, it's flipped around where it's actually the animals are coming into the cities. And we barely know anything about this phenomenon. And so I really think there's a lot more that we can learn uh, working with citizen scientists, working with um, kids, because kids ask the best questions. You know, I, I really think there's a lot more we, we can learn about the animals in our own backyard that's going to surprise us and teach us broadly about zoology and broadly about conservation oh, um, right here in our own cities. That's fantastic. And it's great to hear because I know that a lot of times students who grow up in a city environment, they hear people talking about, oh, running around in the woods, and they might not have that option. But the truth is, there is a lot of science and a lot of wildlife and a lot of things to learn about an urban environment. It really is. And I think, you know, this thing to realize that animals evolve and change. So the thing you might think, oh, we know everything about the animals. Well, you know, if we knew everything about the animals 50 years ago, guess what? It's different now. Right. These animals are changing. 
and we don't know how they're changing, and we need a new generation to go out and find out how. Since this is the walk-in classroom, and I have so thoroughly enjoyed our time together, but unfortunately, we are wrapping up. Uh, but before we leave, I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite place to walk? Anywhere in the woods, I like to walk. Um, places that have views, like mountaintops, are great. It's hard to get up there, but once you're up there, the view is so nice that... Uh, um, and just to, and then to, you know, that view gives you the perspective and I think really gets you thinking about the world in new ways. So uh, for sure, mountaintops are my favorite place to walk. Fantastic. And you can do a little bit of that movement observation that you do. That's right. In your exactly. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us Great. today. I well, appreciate thanks for having time. me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to the, these kids. Thank you. Take care. Thanks.